What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. In a world that is creating an open dialogue and much more honest discussions about our mental health, without judgment. Therapy seems to be much more common, a more common word used in our daily conversations than I think ever before. Short-term, long-term therapy, conventional, psychology, psychiatry, you name it, we seem to be talking about it, or at least I want us to talk about it without the stigma. And right now you might still be thinking that you're sitting on a chair or lying on a couch with the therapist asking questions like, how does that make you feel? Or tell me more about your mother. But we're going to mix things up a little bit today and bring to light cognitive behavior therapy, which is, I'm going to be learning there are a number of different ways to be able to do it and, and different styles. But joining me in studio is Dr. Sanjay Rao, an associate professor of psychiatry at Ottawa University and additional professor of psychiatry at Dalhousie University with degrees that came here in Canada, India, and the UK. Dr. Rao practices from a place of identifying and treating the client both biomedically and therapeutically. He has delivered over 300 workshops in cognitive behavior therapies, presented in national international conferences, and has been published in several scientific journals. So welcome everyone to Living Your Life with Leanne Lang, the podcast brought to you by Extension Marketing. And as always, for more information on getting your company the right marketing tools in this incredibly competitive space, you can head out and check out extensionmarketing.com. Dr. Rao, pleasure to have have you here. Thank you for having me here. I yeah. tried to do a lot of my research on CBD, but I have a feeling I'm going to be learning a ton today. I'm really excited. I'm excited too to talk about CBT. <laughs> so as I was doing my research and, and kind of looking at, at your background, and of course, when you were doing, you know, over 300 conferences and talks, this is a, a topic that is near and dear to you. But you've also been in this medical profession for a long time, spanning different continents, different places. So is home is was home India? Home was India. Yes. Okay. How good childhood, you know, interesting, lively, always academic. Very busy childhood. <laughs> Very yes. busy. Lots of people. Academic. Yeah. Uh, academic, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When was the, the pull for you to start to head into medicine or therapy or the direction that you ended up going? So I suppose you have to think about it here in India in 80s and 90s and probably some of that has not changed. And there was, if you were in sciences, you chose to become a doctor or an engineer. Uh, and uh, it so happened that I was very interested in biology and biochemistry and chemical sciences. And so it was sort of natural to head in that direction. Although my inclination was probably to do research, etc. And I just thought that perhaps medicine will offer a lot of a range of different things. Um, and not just uh, only research, yeah. Well, when you talk medicine, it's hands-on, it's the body, it's surgeries, it's, you know, the mind. Was there, and, and then you take the research part of it, There's there were so many different avenues to go. Yeah, so medicine itself would have at least 13, 14 subjects, so which will go from basic sciences to clinical sciences, so you have a range of different options. And for me, it was always to see things in a kind of integrated way, so I wanted to know how a cell functions, but also how people function. So medicine gave that wide range and depth. Did you enjoy med school? I enjoyed med school, but it was tough. <laughs> yeah. 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 Where was the interest then? When at that point did you decide you were going to go more the psychology, psychiatry route than the practical medicine? <laughs> That's interesting, yes. <clears throat> Never thought of doing um, psychology or mental health at that time, but was interested in reading about things like literature, etc. Uh, and I was very fascinated by certainly the classical uh, literature, English literature, even the Russian classical literature or European classical literature. And it was always about people and how they thought about things. And there was a point where uh, in medical school and in that region or province or state, uh, there were psychiatry quizzes and someone said to me, you have weird interests, you should take part in this quiz. 
Uh, they said you had weird interests. interests. <laughs> what is weird interests? What were they well, thinking? Well, in medical school, if you if you took any interest in things outside of medicine, that I suppose. So uh, I was reading a lot of different things. So so I said, okay, well, I'll do that quiz, and I just immersed myself uh, into studying about mental health to do that quiz, and really got interested in because. By that time, I read so many books on mental health by the time I got to the quiz that uh, I realized that this actually offers an even more interesting combination of things where you are studying everything from like biochemistry of brain to how the mind functions. So, uh, And so I did that for two, three years of that quizzes and it really picked up my interest into it. You yeah. were just doing these quizzes? Yeah, no, they were quizzes as in they were kind of competitions. So you had other teams and you competed with oh, other wow. medical schools. Okay, so yeah. quizzes for you is is these these competitions. Yes, yeah. So they were so it's called a quiz, but actually it was a competition. Yeah, yeah. Quiz okay. technique. Yeah. Okay, so you know, you would study with there, and there would be a, were there a team of you or yeah, just, there was a team. There of was me, a team. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And my friend who's a psychiatrist in U.S. now, so we used to kind of we used to team up together. Yeah, and uh, do this every year. It was fun uh, preparing for it. Yeah. So the preparation for these quizzes, these these competitions, was the that's what ignited the yes. passion for for what was happening, especially mental health. But as you mentioned, biochemical, like you were talking, the reaction yes. that we have in the body. Yeah. So it uh, to me was such a width of thing that you studied when you were studying mental health, or at least in the way in the course that I went for. Um, that's very different from how people train these days. Um, but it was a specialist institute where you started again with, in your mental health, you started with basic sciences and then built up to clinical sciences. So in those three years, four years, you studied a whole range of uh, disciplines. How long ago was that? That was uh, mid-90s. Okay. How different is the dialogue, the research, the conversations around mental health or even talking about what it is that you do from the 90s, fast forward to almost 2020. Uh, yes, and it depends on the continent too. <laughs> it does. Things, uh, mental health is not quite the same conversation every, everywhere. And one of the things which has just come to me, uh, which is, I've thought hard about it. Like for instance, we have campaigns like Well Less Talk or other campaigns. We think of mental health as one thing, but it would be insensitive if we said, or you have a heart problem, or you have arthritis, let's talk about physical health. So to me, we have still not reached there. And the conversation is still about mental health. And in many places, still, like, everything is put in the same bag. But I'm hoping that that's the next evolution. But the conversation has certainly changed to become less of stigma compared to before. Um, and strangely, I think celebrities also ha have contributed to that. It's uh, because when people see that successful people have had this, they seem to be more open to thinking that, you know, this is acceptable part of life. That we can create a dialogue that, that around it. That we can create it. a dialogue around it. When you, when you make the comparison, like something's wrong with your heart or you have arthritis of something's wrong with your body, how many different things are you able to break down when we put mental health in its own bracket? how many subdivisions, like how many things actually would fall under that? And there are lots of controversies around that with DSM, et cetera. But, uh, what does DSM mean? Uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, okay. which, the, which people think it's kind of canning people's experience into these boxes. Um, but there was a time in, in before uh, 1950s and before where we didn't have these kind of separations of different diagnoses. But I think the situation was worse because we didn't have specificity of how to treat and help people with different conditions. But back to your question, uh, which is how many different, not <clears throat> you would have, like if you go down the DSM criteria, there would be uh, so disorders like dementia, which are about people's cognitive abilities, and there are the mental health disorders, and there are addictions. Um, but then again, within that, there are further subdivisions like schizophrenia, mood disorder, anxiety disorders. So there's kind of many, many different categories and subcategories now in, in mental health. Yeah. How hard is the diagnosis of which or where they fall into? You know, a person might come in depressed or anxious or, or feeling a certain way. And yet when you start the discussion or the dialogue, you realize where 
yes. that's where the issue is is really stemming from. So the two ways to two three ways to think about diagnosis. One is uh, well, in terms of difficulty, I don't think it's difficult. I mean, it is a clinical skill. Uh, so far, we don't have computer algorithms to do it. Um, the, the, then what's the use of diagnosis? To me, the biggest use of diagnosis is it helps us define a problem and helps us communicate with the person, with the family, and with other professionals that this is what otherwise uh, it, it's quite confusing to say who ha has what, especially when you're communi communicating across to people. So that's one. Um, imperfect as diagnosis is, and we can talk more about that, but a lot of the studies which follow up people, so for instance, if I have to meet with someone and say you have depression or you have PTSD or you have social anxiety, uh, even though there may be some overlap between diagnosis, I can give them some certainty that these are the approaches which might help you. Or um, the, from me, I always try, try, I try to come from a place of optimism that these are the things which will help you and we know that they help people in a reliable way. So diagnosis as defining problem and charting out a path is what I try to do most. When people are coming to the office, and I said it in my intro, right, are they thinking that they're going to sit there and, you know, answer questions like, how does this make you feel? Or, you know, I I think, you know, I, I joke about that, you know, tell us a little bit more about your mother or your father. I mean, there is so much I think that we genetically take on. There's, as I'm learning to, uh, when you have trauma, how your body, how your emotions, how things hold on to things. So, are people coming in with one expectation and then walking out sometimes with a very different reality of what therapy can be or do for you? Uh, that that may that may be the case. Yes, but very often my first question is uh, when people walk in, and I work in, largely in public settings, is what is uh, what would be important for you? And very often people may not even be able to answer that question, but that is important to understand that they have not thought about what would be important for them because what is important to them for for uh, or i would say that um, at the end of this hour what what would be helpful for you to go away with so I, I try to rephrase that question in different ways to try to get some understanding are people very clear or they're uncertain they're coming to see a psychiatrist what what is it that they want um so that or sometimes it's just my doctor or my family said you should see someone yeah and there's a difference between when you're going to see a psychologist and when you're going to see a psychiatrist. Do people seem to have, are they wary about one versus the other? One seems a little bit more, oh gosh, there's medicine, there's, you know, there's pills, there's, there's, there's a big difference between what the two are able to offer. Uh, or sometimes people may not even know. They don't know yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and I'm not so much a fan of uh, this profession or that profession to me what's the problem and what is the way to intervene like even CBT where I grew up and trained a lot which is in UK we are not we don't have these issues of professional boundaries it's about competence in a particular style of therapy and how you get there uh, so I've always worked in multidisciplinary teams so I've been supervised by nurses psychologists social workers and we just work across across teams that is just the best, the person that can take on this case exactly, yes. is the, is the yeah. one that's able to do that. Yeah. So you just mentioned CBT, so cognitive <clears throat> behavior therapy. What exactly are we referring to? What type of, of therapy is this? So uh, the typical description about cognitive behavior therapy would be that it helps you look at your thoughts and change them so that you will feel better, do things different. But I think that's a very simplistic definition. Cognitive behavior therapy has evolved in about three stages. Uh, so the first phase was behavior, which is kind of reaction to some of the psychodynamic theories. Um, and that looked at how animals and humans learned uh, things, uh, especially in the face of distress. How did they respond to it? What did they learn? And the second phase was really truly the cognitive phase, which is about thinking. And the third phase is about um, do we really need to change people's thinking because thoughts are natural, organic? And that's when all the mindfulness and compassion tradition comes in. So cognitive behavior therapy has now become a, a strange marriage of these, these different schools. If 
three very different schools yes. i think you know and you can talk to someone right now who is into mindfulness and meditation and they will realize that their thoughts and their behavior and the emotions right are very should be separate uh in in some circumstances you know you're dealing with people who are coming in with varying levels of understanding also of the connection of body and mind yes yes so uh do you want me to respond to that yeah well if you if you can i i think some people have the ability or or understand it and some would fight it you know yes. well no it's just how i think change how i'm you know change how i'm thinking well, yes. it's not it's not that easy that's true and just a little bit of background so i also kind of grew up in india so i had a background of learning yoga and meditation etc and um things change when you know it's just like when things come from the east to the west they become very exotic like at one time blue jeans were very exotic in india even though it was the most common thing to have here so it's a bit like that mindfulness yoga meditation just swapping it the swapping bit. it okay. it becomes so exotic and i've always thought that uh, really the heart of the matter should be being uh, a a good clinician a good phenologist phenologist meaning it's a is an ex- existential school understanding the phenomena as it is so when people have an experience of depression how does that feel or when they are experiencing social anxiety how does that feel or when they're hearing voices how does that feel Th- these are actually Euro- european and german traditions so i've tried to conceptualize therapy through that kind of understanding the phenomena then try to look at okay what are the methods by which we can approach this phenomena so i'm not married to the idea that you should change your thoughts or change your behavior or be mindful but look at the phenomena and say how many different ways we can approach this experience and then finally if we look at the literature what are we learning from the different studies and clinical trials as to how these approaches have actually worked when we have applied them to a large number of people so from that individual perspective of how phenomena is to a large scale study perspective to what happens when we actually do this systematically as a study so that's how i approach it i don't know whether i answered your question yeah. oh, okay so i want i'm i'm thinking to the the people that are listening right now mm-hmm. and they're going okay does this is this something that could apply to me or is it something that would work what would a a typical person be coming in for so there's someone listening right now they're driving into work and they're dealing with what or what are they suffering from or what are they looking to change if they're if they're going okay let me learn more about what CBT actually is okay so what CBT will provide for people depending on which style you use but largely it will provide an immediate understanding of the experiences and how how different that experience which for instance if i'm feeling low or depressed i'm looking at it as this big blob weighing on me or surrounding me what cbd will do is break it down to its specific parts so whether you're using mindfulness style cbt or cognitive therapy or behavior therapy it'll break it down to the thinking patterns the emotions uh the physiological experiences and what people do about it so i think that's the strength of cbt it takes these masses of things which are largely human suffering of one kind or the other and breaks it down to more understandable com- components in the immediate thing without reference to necessarily everything before or after. Okay, human suffering. Human suffering, yeah. That right there is going to connect with so many people yes. on some level in some aspect of their life. Yes. Yes. And t- when we say human suffering, uh of course it's uh, the the idea of suffering comes from many religious traditions and particularly the third wave cbd people would refer to uh, suffering because mindfulness buddhism etc which has brought this idea but there is a more nuanced way of looking at suffering i think all suffering is not same and that's what i find another strength of at least the style of cbd that we practice or put together is we So somebody who is experiencing psychosis is going to suffer in a different way than somebody who's depressed than somebody who has problem with ADHD and can't manage their attention uh so all these are different varieties and nuances of suffering and i think cbd gets to the heart of each of those different types of suffering how does it do that 
by actually looking at the subcomponents of of these kind of stuff. So if I'm having difficulty in managing attention, CBD will actually outline how that happens, what are the situations in which it happens, how does it inconvenience you, how does it affect other people. Uh, if I'm having anxiety of being in a social situation, CBD will pinpoint that it's the fear of judgment of other people that that's kind of affecting me. And is that a valid way of looking at that world? Uh, and f finding ways to test out what is the reality of the world in those kind of moments where the suffering arises. So when you say it's, it's, it's the instant of, so let's say we have someone who is, has social anxiety or, you know, and you mentioned it's the way they're seeing other people eventually, their thought is on what other people are thinking of them. But it's not like in this therapy that you would be going back to where does this stem from or how did it build up to be this way or where did they, you know, fall into everything's about how other people perceive them. How far back does do you go back? Yeah. You go back? yeah. That's a very good question. Social anxiety is a very good model. One is that it's one of the commonest anxiety disorders. Um, affects the young people. A lot of my work is dealing with them so that it doesn't affect them for the rest of their life. It's, there are different ways in which it arises. Some people, uh, there might be few events and they just become socially anxious. In other ways, it might arise from that they might have been shy people and it arose from many life experiences. What CBT would do is formulate it by looking at a longitudinal perspective of their life. But be very focused in the present moment when you're dealing with it. So those things are ways of understanding the human experience and how they've arrived there. But in actually treating them, you'll be treating, starting with how is it happening now. Right. It's yeah. the present moment. It's the present moment. And I think maybe sometimes that's what people are looking for. They want to go into a therapy and go, I need, I want this issue yes. dealt with now. Yes. I, I don't have in my capacity, I don't want to go back 20, yes. 30 years. I just, I want to be able to deal with this yes. current situation and move forward from this. So you would dip, uh, yes, you would be focused in the present, but especially with social anxiety, I've seen that there are, it's very image based. It, people see how other people, people see themselves through the eyes of other people. So there are a lot of images when you're doing this work with them. But sometimes the images are linked to other images from before. So as we're doing that work, organically we'll find some, some relationship with the past and then we'll deal with those as they come up. But we won't necessarily start with age two and go forward. Right. Yeah. As things evolve, you're yeah. able to tackle those. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. What kind of images are we referring to then? Uh, uh, the images, if in the present moment, the images, uh, I usually, what I do is I, I draw a stick figure and ask people to describe how they see their themselves through eyes of other people, especially in social anxiety. And it could be strange things. It could be either how I look, but it could even be how I sound, or things I do. Do I blush? Does my hand shake uh, when I'm having coffee? So it can be, so we go into details of how exactly they are seeing the world through other people's eyes. And, and there'll be huge amount of imagery distortions uh, in, in that moment. The distortion? Yes. Can you expand on that? So uh, in one instance, I saw like somebody uh, I was treating uh, and I have to keep confidential. Yeah, no, so absolutely, treating, right, yeah. I was treating and the person actually really felt that they were turning beetroot red in social situations. So we did an experiment of uh, actually videoing the person in with another person and in some instances just making them recall a situation and they felt they were turning beetroot red so we just used the phone and captured that and the person was surprised that they weren't really they weren't beef, turning beetroot red as they all blotchy skinned or whatever else uh, and just that that they thought it was a distortion in their mind that that they looked like that when in fact they didn't. When in fact, so it was not so much to challenge that you don't look like this. It's more in the way of can we examine it as it is and see what comes out of it. You mentioned that there were a number, I think you said eight different ways. Is that? CBD schools. I hope I can remember all of them. Yes. How different are they? Very different. Um, 
but the focus in present moment is very, very important okay. across them. So present moment across the board is yes, the yes. essential part behind CBT. Yes, all, yes. Okay. Yeah, the present experience. Yeah. And now we may dice and splice it in different ways according to different theories. Uh, and it's important to learn them and practice them. Eight different theories. Oh. Are you thinking? Close I'm not going to gonna make you. Yeah. I'm not going to make you list them. Yeah. But what would be? Can you give us examples of how different they would yeah. be? So, for instance, in, if you take the prime, one of the earliest school, behavioral school, we'll look at um, how people learn. So, if you, uh, you know, the typical example is Pavlov's dog. When you ring the bell, they salivate. So you experience something and you associate it with something else. So that's that's one style of CBT or uh, you experience distress and you try to escape it like if you're socially anxious or you're having a panic attack you leave that and it gives you relief so you learn to do that repeatedly and you get trapped by that so that's your behavioral school and uh, the cognitive style schools will look at in that moment when that was happening what was going through your mind how did you look at things what did you think other people were thinking about you they might focus on on that much more closely. Uh, a mindfulness therapist might be looking at in that moment, how, what were you experiencing and what were you leaving out from, your exp- from the totality of the experience? Because you're not just that socially anxious person, you're more than that, but you're only experiencing that aspect of the experience. So different schools would uh, dissect it in different ways. And there's another interesting school, like uh, it's called schema-focused uh, therapy, which has almost been a branch of CBD. That would actually look at, from your early childhood, how have these impressions been created and concretized now to the kind of beliefs and reactions that you're having. So as many different styles, as, as uh, there are different ways of doing therapy. You know, having been in this line of medicine for so long are you able to quickly figure out which theory which way you'll approach a situation this podcast is brought to you by extension marketing they are a new breed of marketing agency that acts as your virtual marketing department designing and implementing cost-effective marketing strategies that will grow your business i can speak to this personally as i've been using the extension marketing team to help me launch and grow my business Founder Pat Whalen has been a lifesaver for me, a genuine coach guiding me along the way into uncharted territory. Tell them you're a friend of the show and receive a free one-hour consultation. Check them out at extensionmarketing.com. Um, I think so, yes. yeah. I mean, in fact, uh, and I, you know, this is not that I want to propagate my style, but uh, I look at CBT in that sort of unified uh, perspective, and that's what I call my school. Uh, unified CBT and I think we have to learn with due diligence from each of these different styles but put them together and I was I was just thinking about it when I originally started putting this together uh, I was learning these skills and when I look at the sort of the CrossFit now I see that people learn to to be fit uh, you there are different aspects to it so very early on like 10 years ago when I was teaching people I said you know when people are learning exercise, fitness, or sports, they cross-train. They train across different things. So I always say to people, you know, CBD is not one sport, but it's like being a decathlete or a pentathlete. So you need to learn different things. And they're self-enhancing in, in that way. But to your answer, yes, I, I, I can not fairly certainly say, okay, this might be an easier path for this person. Yeah. I think for people to consider that, right? They're they're heading into something. It's like a decathlon, or yeah. you know, a tri- like there are multiple events that need to be done. That's for to the therapist. That's for the therapist to learn it that way. To learn it that way, that yeah. there there are a number of things that have to be approached or completed. Yes. For the overall, you yes. know, to finish the race. Yes. Almo- almost. Yes. Yes. In the introduction, I I, I remember reading because it was like a biomedically and therapeutically. Mm-hmm. What is the biomedic? biomedical part of the discussion so well my is that a fair so. question to ask no it's, okay. it's a fair question i'm just thinking uh, how far it will take me away from the cbd question mm-hmm. you have so there's always a sometimes know. people want the quick fix yeah sometimes people are like just give me a pill make me feel better there, there's that line of thinking yes they'll come in and say just i just want to fix this yes they don't 
they don't want to do the work. Yes. Do you often get that? They don't they don't really want to do the work. They just want to feel better. Uh, I think it's human to want to feel better. And I can I have complete uh, empathy. And if I was in that position, I would want that too. And what I turn that around is, and that's precisely why you want CBT. You want to feel better and you want to feel better in a sustained way. Sustained. Yes. Uh, and uh, this is one of my bugbears when I give public lectures. Very often when people have a panic attack or they're feeling anxious or stressed, they will get something like Adivan, uh, you know. And it's not there in any treatment guideline as first-line treatment for any of the mental health disorders. Okay. Uh, yet it's prescribed so easily across practices, emergency rooms, you name it. And when people come and ask me, but I got this and why can't you prescribe this? I said to them, I say to them, but you know, a glass of wine works equally well, but that's not something I'm going to prescribe for anxiety. Uh, and in fact, we now know that by doing those quick fixes, you're you're preventing people relearning how to deal with that anxiety. Okay, right there, it's like, <laughs> like I think that for for a lot of people, that could be like mind blowing because people are so often. I you know I have friends that you know are getting on a plane. What are they going to do? They're going to pop an Ativan beforehand. Someone's you know they're in an argument. They're anxious. They're pissed off at their family. Like, what do they do? They go upstairs. They pop an Ativan. You know, people have become, it's habitual now yes. that they're searching for this. And what you're saying is no. No. In, in fact, if you look at the basic science data of Adivan, it prevents learning and concentration. So uh, if you want to do therapy, it's actually going to be harder if you keep popping Adivan because you're not learning an alternate way of dealing with that anxiety. I mean, so. What does it take for a person, though, to make the choice not to pop the Adivan, but to go find the the way to be able to to deal or or to work your way through the situation without having to go grab it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there are very few situations where we would use Ativan, and I think the only situation is when you are in an inpatient setting or an emergency setting, and people are extremely agitated. There's risk of damage, violence. We might use that, but in most instances, in day to day life, we shouldn't. And that's what I would encourage people to do: is find the therapy which will help you. Uh, learn the skills and wisdom to deal with that suffering rather than popping the Ativan. Without giving examples, I mean, you know, a, a doctor-patient, you know, confidentiality, are people able to come in and say, saying, usually I have social anxiety if we're going to an event, I'll pop an Ativan, let's just say. What has the reaction been from your patients that might have come in, not not stubbornly, but maybe not, quite believing that there was an ability to feel better in a certain way. What is the reaction you usually get when they feel like the situation, the current present is a lot better than it would have been months yeah. prior? So uh, there are a range of uh, different ways people approach us anyway. So if I'm working in a university practice, uh, people are fairly early on in their, their career with, with this kind of stuff. So uh, they may not have done Ariman as much. And then there are people who would have been on this for a number of years before they seek help. Most often when people come to me, they have tried all this stuff. And the simple thing I ask them, but did has it helped you in so many years that you've tried it? And that just stops them to rethink. And then I try to uh, say that, and there is an alternative to be free of this uh, so that you can enjoy the quality of life that you want without having to do this. Are you seeing a lot more young people in the office? I, I listen, I have two daughters who uh, have devices and have phones and have different concerns and worries and discussions than I ever did at that that age. Are, are, we seem to just be shifting. We are not as communicate like, you know, conversations and discussions and dialogue is it's like a dying art with the next generation of people they're living through these devices that are 24-7 in front of their faces. Yes, you know, the the previous generation always criticizes the next generation. Do we do <laughs> that? I think we, it happened <laughs> okay. to us. I'm sure yeah. it happened to us. Yeah. And yes, but um, it's interesting because uh, in working with, with young people, we have to be sensitive to one really important issue that during the teen years, that's when the mind and the brain is changing. So it is quite a struggle. I mean, things are in a flux. And we see that mental health 
disorders and conditions across cultures actually uh, uh, seem to seem to kind of prostrate around those uh, phases in life. Um, so most of the mental health disorders will arise early and that will be in teen and early adulthood years. But the positive thing is if we actually intervened at that time, we'll get some really, really early results. So back to your question, are things... So if we intervene early on, but how do we know, you know, that they're suffering or there are things... I mean, granted, you want to be able to have this dialogue with your children, but to understand that a lot of the development, a lot of this is actually occurring over those years to be able to catch it early and help them. Yes. So... The short answer to that is to see how people are functioning in in that. So it's not just the teen tantrum. It's just overall, how is the person functioning in comparison to the peer group? Uh, As for devices, they're not necessarily bad things. I think think people are just beginning to relate in a a different way now. I mean, I lost touch with a lot of my friends uh, and I got back in touch with them because of uh, Facebook and social media and it has enriched my life. So I think we shouldn't necessarily blanket say that they are bad ways of communicating. Uh, There's certainly um, the negative part of it. I can give you examples of how I've used it in therapy. For for instance, I had somebody who had very severe depression and very severe and had been treated with many antidepressants and was actually referred to me by a psychiatrist. And one of the things I did with this person, and I've done this with many people, is the first way for this person to reconnect with the people uh, they knew was to use social media. And that was the first step to get out of depression, is to message someone, go back on their Facebook, etc. So, uh, and in other cases with social anxiety, uh, we might have getting people to go to chat rooms and have a discussion or use video platforms to communicate with people as a way of getting out of social anxiety. So for me, it has been a wonderful tool to actually treat people. I hadn't looked at it that way. I'm looking at it as a, a lack of communication skills. I mean, there's no pick up a phone and have a real conversation it's sending 20 texts of short form writing, yes. you know, because the, and and there's an art of dialogue, of connection, of making eye contact with people. And yes. And and I, I feel human connection is a is a massive part of life. Okay. And yet you see them looking down and it's and it, almost like an instant gratification, right? Of the, the the dings and the, you know, messages coming back and forth with without much meaning to them yes and and certainly uh, there is that sort of uh, social media anxiety also that we are seeing which is not kind of diagnosable form of anxiety but when i have dealt now i i don't think i'm an expert in everything which goes on in society but the people who walk in to see me when i've worked in university practices uh, even though they are using all these things but they could relate very well like uh, when i spoke with them they I didn't see any deficiency because of devices in the way they were connecting to people. Um, so on one hand, there were people who perhaps are spending all night gaming and all their friends are only from that circle. Um, but on the other hand, people seem to have no difficulty. in. in so there is probably that extreme group. Mm-hmm. But in general, I don't think it's impairing people as much as we think. So should, as parents, we lay off a little bit of our teens that are we seem to think are constantly on their devices? Or, well, or I, should we be a little bit more proactive in that it's not necessarily, you know, as bad as we think? Uh, so the, in, in basic studies with devices, they certainly interfere with uh, concentration, task performance. So for us too, every time we check, we shift our attention away and we seem to be less capable of doing the tasks. That is there. But as but that's also a way in which people now connect with each other. So if we can keep some kind of division between, okay, you use it for these purposes, but then there are other functions as well in life, uh, which may need to be done without the devices. Uh, whether it's your study or your sports or your one-to-one time with people. Well, you you had talked about addictive behavior. Are yes. you seeing, though, that there is an addictive behavior? 
I suddenly see reports of it. They're not coming to us in mental health. Uh, certainly in private side, there are people who are beginning to specialize to see this um, as addictive behaviors now. Um, but they are not definitely coming to public uh, mental health settings as addictive behaviors. Yeah. When you say mental health, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? You know, in just using the term mental health. Because I know you've practiced this in business and, you know, it, in workplaces. And there's a lot of different ways in which companies or people view this as to what constitutes they're dealing with a mental health issue or they're not. Yes. Uh, uh, we should probably think of mental health as health, but unfortunately we think of them as mental disorders. But if you really go down to the details, there are two components. One is... Uh, mental well-being and the other component is mental unwellness and they're not necessarily diametrically opposite uh, in fact statistically when you study with them and you graph them they're not like one two ends of the spectrum okay it's not like a teeter-totter you know like a uh, no if okay. you if you think of uh, two lines crossing each other it's more like that so uh, there was a study done in uk looking at uh, public data and they looked at that People, even if they have mental disorders, uh, they still are capable of experiencing happiness and uh, mental fulfillment. So they, they just seem to be possible to be present in the same person. And that was a very interesting uh, data. And I, I did some studies based on that later when I came to Canada, looking at long-term data to look at what do these things do to people. But yeah, there are two dimensions of experiences. What do you consider a mental disorder? So mental disorder will be like, um, you know, depression, uh, panic disorder, schizophrenia. Those are the mental disorders. Uh, and we, the moment we say mental health, we probably refer to them, but we should refer mental health as probably mental well-being and these things as disorders. Is there a well-being component? Like we look at preventative health now, right? You have naturopaths and uh, naturopathic doctors and nutritionists that are looking at preventative you know if you consume this and this you have a chance of you know a better gut health a better immune system which you know and i do think there's a great connection between gut health and brain health like is there something that you could be doing for the well-being of the brain almost as a preventative measure uh, measure as well so the in 40 years of uh, or 50 years of research on this probably the single most preventative intervention is exercise and across the board for not just mental, but physical health too. For everything. Yeah. But you're looking for that preventative, like how to be able to enhance yeah. the endorphins or what comes from exercise still. Yeah. So exercise is one of those interesting interventions now that you ask, which has both short-term and long-term effect. So you see when people exercise, they are they immediately have a positive mood for uh, after exercise, but they also report less depression across time if they exercise regularly. Uh, so it's one of those unique things, I think, which has that property that uh, it boosts people immediately, but also over the longer term. So you have a very depressed person who is on a couch, depressed, lethargic, no energy to get up or to do anything. And yet you're saying, get up, have a discussion, sit with someone, try CBD and go exercise. And they're sitting on the couch going, there's not a chance. Okay. I, I can't get myself off the couch, let alone be able to start and, and do all of these things. So, I'm trying to be realistic. I'm trying to think of, you know, coming at it from a different mindset. Well, that's exactly the sort of people I see, right? So that's really interesting because I have seen that. And uh, Like what, just getting to your office took yeah. the most... More more energy than they've put out in months just yeah. to get out of the house and go. Or, or not even getting to the office, just living in the basement uh, because they have nowhere to go and they're depressed. Uh, so in su uh, there's a, there is a style of CBD called behavioral activation treatment, very effective. Um, and the times when I've used that, uh, um, and I run courses on that as well, is because it's so, it's so elegant and simple that we start with looking at uh, uh, an audit of the person's day or the week and see how it looks compared to how it used to look before. Uh, 
and then start putting those things back slowly uh, uh, in, in small graded steps. Uh, but in effect, we're reducing the intense avoidance and fear by adding them. And I've had people who literally have gone back to gym doing weights, etc. Uh, it took a few weeks, uh, but they got back to it. Can I play devil's advocate for a second? Mm-hmm. Have you ever had someone that is in a, a severe depression and then you go through all the things that they used to do and then they look at that list and go get even more depressed of knowing what their life used to look like and how did they get so far down the rabbit hole that it would almost create an even more compounding and look where I'm at now. Yeah. Um, So when I'm training therapists, I always say, don't do it at the end of the session because they're going to go home (laughs) feeling like that. Do it in the middle of the session so that you can deconstruct uh, things. There will be an element of helplessness when we analyze people's suffering and at least one school of CBT's acceptance commitment therapy would see that as creative helplessness. So uh, when you see that, you feel helpless, but it also creates for the therapist to examine what's important for you in life and to be able to generate hope, which is another important part of um, skill set of CBT therapists, to be able to create the hope, to say almost like, uh, so I'm, I am your coach to get you back to this. Hope is such a, an important word. Yes. Is it something that you're able to, to use in the office? All the or time. Or that, that it's something that you, that you want people to All hear repetitive? Yeah. And that's, um, I was talking to one of my colleagues, and I, again, it was still trying to keep confidentiality in the number of people I see. So let's say I saw a person X and have been for therapy and various things over the years, uh, tried different treatments. To me, the most important thing, what they should go away with is hope. And that's, it doesn't matter who walks in. But giving the example of such a person, uh, when I converse with them uh, a session and two later, uh, they might say, I didn't believe you, but that this is possible at that time. But the way you spoke gave me hope because you were optimistic that something could be done. And they may not remember about what is CBT or what other therapy, but the fact that they're going away with uh, something can be done about it, there's hope, is very important. Are there ways for family members, for friends, to be able to create that dialogue or that hope so that they have it for the hour that they're in your office, but that you're able to maintain that or have, um, you know, an ability for family members and stuff to say, okay, we can take some of these ideas and offer this to this person while they're in our care. Are there ways or for yes. people to learn how to how to continue that process? Yes, and there are ways. Uh, and there's a generic aspect to it that uh, mental health is treatable. That's the kind of the large picture. And there's a very specific abs- uh, way of generating that hope, which is uh, whenever I see someone, uh, I ask them, do you have family or significant other who would want to meet in the next few sessions uh, and what I try to do is give them all a little bit of homework tasks I'll get some reading material um, so which is easily readable uh, I'll ask them what their questions are and then they come back by easy readable it's written in terms that we can understand it's not like we're yeah, reading yeah. a medical journal and we yeah, after and the, the second have, paragraph we toss it yeah I, I've, I have identified those sort of materials and sites uh, so it's kind of a technical thing to generate that hope. It's not just an emotion thing, right? Hope is uh, uh, also a technical construct. So then they see what's the information. Then I show them what are the treatments which are available. And then they can actually participate in some of those things. So for instance, when you're treating somebody with hoarding or OCD, it's really helpful to have the family members and others because hoarding and OCD and depression can hijack everybody's mm-hmm. life. So how do we work on this so it doesn't hijack this person's life, but also the family member's life? So that way everybody's part of that kind of team which is doing this work. And that automatically generates hope because there's a method to do it. But that method is different for each kind of problem, uh, whether you're dealing with depression or social anxiety or OCD. Uh, each one will be slightly different how you do that. The other thing that I read with the CBD is that they're shorter. It's a shorter time. 
So it's not like you're you're checking in going, this could be, you know, the, a, a long, long run. What did you mean by shorter time so that people have maybe a little bit of an awareness of what their investment is going to be in this? So it's time limited. Uh, so depending on the type of CBT. So for instance, uh, most of the trials with PTSD would say that on average you need 12, 12 sessions. Okay. Uh, uh, but of course, you can have PTSD because you had a road traffic accident. You have PTSD because you had multiple, uh, you know, traumas and abuse, and that would be different. Uh, but that's how uh, CBD works. It's time limited. But there are styles of CBD, for example, schema-focused therapy for personality disorder that would last two, three years. So, but still time limited. What do you mean by time limited? Exactly. Okay, so here's, this is the typical example I give gave to one of my uh, clients uh, like when you contract let's say you had a problem with your kitchen and you wanted to contract at work and the builder comes and says yeah it could take six months or a year or more than that but when it's done it'll be like what you like it to be would you trust that person or somebody who gives you an estimate it'll be about six to eight months and within that period these are the things we can do depending on the weather it can go a little bit this way that way and I always tell my clients that so which one would you prefer and they say well I want the person who's going to give me a close estimate rather than an unending open job I said well then I want to be that builder for you right but even in that even in that description you said there could be weather yeah there could be factors as to why yeah we'll need to extend it you know or why why we couldn't work on this because we had to fix yes. this leak, right? So you're giving them that dialogue that there will be things or could be things that will come up that yes. would change that estimate. Yes. And uh, what I uh, say is, and then that's why we review on a, on a regular basis to see where we are uh, with things. Yeah. Is it a, emotional for people? Are they able to kind of come in and, and, and construct things or oftentimes it becomes a, a, a deep emotional release for people? A very good question, and uh, sometimes it's difficult to answer questions in general because I have specific examples in mind, mm-hmm. and they, it depends on the kind of condition which you're treating with. I certainly see that emotional release phenomena a lot when we're dealing with PTSD because there's something very trapped in the memories um, that people have. I mean, we all have difficult memories, but we're not necessarily trapped by them. Can I ask if you believe that we hold some of that trauma in our in our cells, like in our in our body? Do you do you believe that? Or is that something that you are open to? That we carry trauma, we carry it within our body that, you know, trauma can affect us, it can lead to illness, like that, that we hold on to things so much, not just in how we're thinking, but how our body reacts. Okay, so there's a long answer to it, but I'm going to just tell you a little yeah, bit about the long. Okay, the long answer I'll is I'm looking the at the time. Th- okay, yeah, we got a couple minutes to go. Yeah. Uh, okay, then I'll give you the short answer. Any experience is multidimensional. It's physical, and mental, and emotional, and that's what a good CBD therapist should look at. But if you locate it to just the mind or just the body or just the emotion, then you're really trivializing it. So. I don't want to do that. So I mm-hmm. look at the whole complete uh, signature of that experience. It's uh, all encompassing. It's all encompassing. And it can be very different from one person to another. Yeah. That's how uniquely different experience well, yeah, can And be. sometimes it can be very significantly located in the body. And for some other people, we're very significantly located in a certain emotion. But the job of the CBD therapist is to open that to see the totality of the experience and then work through that. So at the end of all of this, and there's someone that's saying, you know, open-minded to, to heading into therapy or having this dialogue, what questions do they need to be asking their therapist to say, are we doing CBT? What kind of therapy are we going to be doing? Because how, as a layman, as, as some of us who don't really have a full understanding, what are the questions that we need to be asking our medical practitioner to know what kind of therapy we're heading into? Um the therapy should be consistent with what the guidelines say is the right for that. The CBD therapist should be trained according to what are guidelines for training. It takes at least 9 to 12 months of dedicated training to be a CBD therapist, and that's really important. Like how different is it, though, than going to your psychologist? Like you have to be trained in the CBT yes. yeah. format. 
Yes. And are there a lot of people that are trained in this? Is it really sought after? Like, are, are people wanting more of it? Well, you know, you have a background in athletics. So there are lots of uh, people who exercise, but then there are some people who are athletes and they trained for it. And that's how I see CBD training. Yes, everybody can exercise, but if you want to be an athlete, which is what I want the therapist to be, they, I want them to be CBD athletes. So that intensity of training has to be there. And, the, and, and it's very specified. So do you have a lot of medical students now or, or, or that are saying, this is the line that I yeah, want to Yes, interesting. Go. So increasingly, medical students have been approaching and some of them are attending programs as well. Yes, yeah. But it's some, a question that you should be asking if, you're, if your doctor is referring you to a psychologist or psychiatrist and they're saying, we need to dive deeper into these issues. You go to your family doctor and you talk about your anxiety or depression and they're going to you know, send you along the way to a, to a specialist. Can they ask for somebody? Can, can they say, I'd like to try this or who can I go to that's doing CBT? They absolutely can. And luckily in Ontario, we have uh, improving access to structured psychotherapy, which is a government funded uh, CBD program, which is being piloted. It's not extending everywhere. That's the public option. There are a range of uh, private practitioners who are offering it too, and they can ask the doctors to refer. But I always say to people, you have to make sure that the practitioner is actually doing CBT. It's not just a self-proclamation that I do CBT. Because it would be that different. Yes, and that the best way to look at it is look at the training, whether they have uh, spent significant amount of time doing CBT. Yeah. Because if you could compare a sixty-minute session with one and a sixty-minute session with two, you would see going down the checklist how different. How different it is. Yes. Can you give me that just as we're wrapping this up? Like, what would be right off the bat? Like two or three different things that you would be able to pick up right away. A CBT session will always be structured, and it's a lot of CBT will success of CBD will rest on what people do in between sessions. And when people come and say, I have had CBT, ask them, what did you do between the sessions? And if there's nothing, then it's not CBT. So there's work to be done when you leave a CBT session. That's a lot of work of CBT, which happens. Between so there's homework. Sessions. Yeah. Is that fair to say? There's, there's homework associated? Yes. Is it homework of dialogue? Is it homework on paper? Uh, it's definitely paper is to kind of document and, and remember what you do, but you can use your cell phone. Uh, to me, homework has two purposes. One is to make people self-observant and then see what happens when they try different things and to document that. So there is the process. So that would be that that critical question you ask. What were the exercises that what you did? What did you do between sessions? In between sessions. Yes. And do you find a lot of the work and the progress is done in that time? Yes. If the success, the good therapist will get people to live life between sessions. Uh, and that's that's an art and a science to do that. Mm. Yeah. Live life in between sessions. Yeah. It's an interesting way of, uh, <laughs> of describing it. Yes. People want, that's all we really want, right, at the end of the day, yeah. to be present and live life. At, exactly, at yes. Do you like what you, like, do you feel accomplished at the end of the day? Like, are there days when you kind of go, A, they did their work in between sessions, and you see that light at the end of the tunnel. That hope was there. It was given to them. It's interesting. I never feel tired at the end of the day. Oh, uh, the days I do CBT, which is most days, I don't feel tired at the end of the day because it is such a life-enhancing thing to do. And you see people change all the time after years of trauma, etc. So, you know, it's, I think it works both ways. Yeah. I don't think I have many people that come in after the end of a work day and say that they don't feel tired. Yeah. And with the type of work that you do. Because yeah. I know even it was, you know, even trying to get, you know, having you come in, it's like it didn't want to affect anyone's sessions yes. they wait too long and to try to be able to get in and to be able to see you if people are looking for more information they're going to be hearing this where can they find more information on you on the practice on on where you're at because i know there's a, a couple of different places to find you yeah so i, I am uh, i have a public health practice i work in uh, brockville general hospital now uh, i also have a practice called uh, cmap health center for mental and psychological health where the therapists i train work and I have a unified CBD academy, which is the training arm of the work that I do. So if there are therapists right now who are looking for more information on becoming a CBD specialist and getting it, they can actually learn and do things through you. Yes, I, uh, I'm fairly confident that unified CBD academy is the most intensive uh, training across North America uh, because it's not just a weekend workshop in CBD. 
was it important for you to share the knowledge and to have more people doing this? You don't you don't establish an academy and put the work into training others. You know, as you grow older, you you hope that the other people will take the torch and and do it. So yes, that's what I want to do now. Well, I will have all of the websites, all of the information for you uh, in the show notes. Definitely, hopefully, some things to digest and think about uh, as you're, you know, heading into you know this new year and wanting to be able to maybe face not necessarily the demons, but as you said, that hope that living in the present and that and feeling good about what it is you're doing and overcoming some of the challenges that you might deal with on a day-to-day basis or that of a family member as well so i really appreciate you coming in and sharing all of this information with us thank you to everyone who's been listening uh, to the content sharing and helping the podcast grow truly appreciate it and as always please continue to comment and like and share Uh, word of mouth is the best way to get this podcast traveling around the world and i definitely appreciate the efforts that you guys have been making so thanks so much uh thank you to dr rao and everyone have a great day have you ever thought i'd love to have a podcast just like this one Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.